Hello, and welcome back to Ranking 76 for Ranking the 76 Heroes and Villains of the American West. I'm Eric. And I'm Matt. And this is part two of George Armstrong Custer. Custer, the second half. Half, 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 half. Again, HBO, if you're looking to uh, to do a miniseries, this guy deserves it because it was kind of intense the last episode if you haven't listened to last episode we went over his civil war years and now we were going to return to the west the land that we kind of know but he's still going to be george custer isn't he the egotistical big head charge into battle take no prisoner be silly that we all know and love. Does he at least catch up with his wife? I mean, where has she been? I mean, I mean, she's always in the background. Like I, said, I did kind of skim her out of the episode. I did originally have a lot more written to her, but that would have brought in the word count from like 11,000 total words and some change to like 12,000 and some change. So like I did, that was a cut maybe far down the road. We, I even thought about giving her her own episode, but I also don't know uh, how entertaining just backroom politicking is. And also there's other podcasts that do that also. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of remind me her name again. Libby, Libby, Libby Bacon, Libby Custer. Um, okay. Well, we're not starting off with his birth like we normally do because this is part two. So we're going to start. Should we do like a last time on? Sure. Good. Or like a previously on George Custer part one. Again, Custer isn't a great student. Like he's much rather like let's have fun with the boys, but do the bare minimum kind of thing. It's it's clear that he's clever, but he doesn't take himself seriously. Oh, is that all we talked about? Yeah, well, I guess we didn't need two episodes for that, huh? <laughs> okay. So we are finding George Custer after the war. And as America is starting to heal itself from the most destructive war in its history, the goal is to bring the Confederate states back into the Union and do so while also incorporating former slaves into society. But with outside of the Civil War, Custer doesn't believe that the army should actually be taking in civil cases, a la Reconstruction. Before the war... Custer sided more with the Confederates more than he did with the Union politically. After four years, somehow that hasn't changed him much. He believes that freemen wouldn't work and that they, and more specifically, that they wouldn't go back to work in the field. However, for those who were willing to basically go back into their slavery, uh, he would be willing to bring them up to, quote, their highest level. But also during Reconstruction, again, this man who doesn't believe the army should be in social cases doesn't understand why they're there. He's about to be sent to Texas. He will list 50 murders of ex-slaves refusing to obey their old masters, even reports of selling freedmen. But Custer doesn't believe the army should have anything to do with it. Sure. Sheridan had asked Custer to come down to Texas uh, just to help with Reconstruction, but it's a relatively uneventful time for Custer other than all of, I don't know, the former slave murders going on. And he actually runs into more issues dealing with his volunteer regiments, which is kind of surprising considering all of his men loved him during the war. But even at this time, it's 
he was an Eastern war theater general and they're in the Western. It's very, very weird type of politics going on. Basically they didn't want him and he's actually replaced. Uh, Custer's command is replaced by regular soldiers in November, 1865. So since the war ended in April and November, he's already out of Texas. So there's not much going on there. Custer, however, if he's not fighting on the battlefield, he really enjoys politically fighting you almost get the sense that he just love. He's not built for quiet. He is built for the storm. He loves confrontation and he loves everything that can be brought into it. He would publicly talk about forgetting how bad the South crime was that eventually started the civil war. So it's honestly, we can bring them back in guys and just pretend like nothing happened as if, Four years of constant bloodshed didn't matter at all. Let's just go tons back to and tons had. of people dying. No, no, it's exactly. We're just going to go right back to how it was. In September 1866, cover Custer travels with President Andrew Johnson. Remember, obviously, Lincoln is assassinated by this time. Uh, and Johnson, uh, likely the most racist president we've ever had. So that's wonderful right after Lincoln freeing the slaves. But anyway, different podcast. Go listen to Presidencies of the United States or Totalis Ranking American Presidents. They do a wonderful job covering him. But Johnson could kind of use some good PR. He's kind of getting beat up in the media at this point. So he actually asked Custer to join him on a tour. Uh, Custer maybe also got promoted to lieutenant colonel. Uh, of a newly formed cavalry during this time. So who's to say maybe that there was a wink and a nod deal somewhere that Custer would allow him uh, himself to be nominated. But what it does show is that Custer and Johnson at least are politically connected. If not more friendly. Friendly. Yes. Now I can also see the Custer just using Johnson to get notoriety. Like, look who I'm with. I'm the 25 year old hero of the war with the president. Did you say he so he was is now a lieutenant colonel in the army, right? In the army, because yes. he was a general in uh, with the volunteers. Yes, but now there's so, really no more volunteers, right? So he, he lo- loses that rank, and now he's a 25 year old lieutenant colonel. Yes, of a newly formed Seventh Cavalry which is the first time we've mentioned the 7th Cavalry. He will basically run this cavalry uh, literally to their death. (laughs) But this is still 1866. Shortly after the tour, Custer is actually going to be stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas, and Custer leaves for the West in October of that same year. The West that Custer walks into is still in its build of the violence that it's about to be, if that made any sense. Red Cloud's war is starting to come to an end. Uh, it's 1867. The Fort Laramie Treaty will be signed in the fall of 1868. In the Southwest, however, the Apaches are just wreaking havoc between American and the Mexican border. Uh, that's a big kerfuffle going on. Native attacks on immigrant trains and settlements are consistent as tribes push Americans out of the area. And with Reconstruction going on in the South, it's kind of a busy time for anyone involved in the country in a leadership role. Custer is assigned under a man named Winfield Scott Hancock, uh, and he is going to lead an expedition against the Cheyennes. Hancock, 
recently just had a messenger killed and along with 10 other soldiers massacre at the hands of the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne. So you can already kind of see the tension is already there building up. One of the early meetings Custer had with Native Americans was a council with Hancock and the Cheyennes. Honestly, I couldn't summarize the attitude better than Hancock and a chief named Tom Bull are about to. So we're in a meeting. Hancock and uh, Bull Bear are making their, their statements. Hancock told them that their mission was clear. Hancock, quote, now I have great many soldiers, more than all of the Indians put together. I have not heard that a great many Indians want to fight. Very well. We are here and we are prepared for war. If you are for peace, you know the conditions. If you are for war, look for its consequences. He continued, We are building railroads and building roads through this country. You must not let your young men stop them. These roads will benefit the Indian as well as the white man in bringing their goods to them cheaply and promptly. The steam car and the wagons must run. In other words, do what I say or we're going to kill you. But we're going to call it peace. Is really the only option. He only gave them two options. Uh, neither of them are great for them. There's not much of a negotiation. Tall Bear replied, Buffalo are distinguishing are diminishing fast. They were plenty a few years ago and now are few. When they die, they all die away and we shall be hungry. We shall want something to eat and we shall be complied, compelled for the, to come into the fort. Your young men must not fire on us. Whenever they see us, they fire, they fire, and we fire on them. Hancock then spoke again. We know the buffalo are going away. We cannot help it. The white men are becoming a great nation, and you must keep your young men off of the roads. Don't stop the trains and the travelers on the road, and you will not be harmed. Hancock then finished the, se- the council simply saying, I have spoken, and then he leaves. I mean, it's simple. Just don't mess with us, or we're going to kill you. Yes. Yep. And Fun. that, my friends, is all. Meeting adjourned. All right. Yeah, everyone go on about your days. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I love how uh, that's a common theme. You go into someone's territory and be like, I, I'm the ruler now. Yes. Like in, but have a great day. Have a great day. Well, like yes, we're now. Does the U.S. own the territory? Yes, by their rules and like by their rules, essentially they have conquered the territory. Only I was going to say by (laughs) yeah, it's like me walking into a park. I own this now. Yes, stay off of my land. And everyone like, no, I'm going to walk my dog here. And then you just happen to have a bigger dog that chases them all off. Okay, yeah, no, no, you can walk on it. Yeah, sure, 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 yeah. I mean, whatever happens, happens. But <laughs> As you're sharpening your dog's, like, teeth. Teeth teeth and claws, right? And I also like the... Bull Bear talks about, like, well, you're running off the buffalo. We're going to be starving, and we're going to come into the forts asking for help. And your men fire on us. And Hancock's response is essentially, yeah, we know the buffalo are going away. We can't help that. But, nothing uh, we can do about that. There's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. Really? There's nothing. No. Nothing. <laughs> you just said you had more soldiers than there are Native than there are Indians, and you're telling me nothing can be done. Okay. I don't believe you. I don't like that guy one bit. Yeah, he's not in here long. 
<laughs> no, sorry, that implied he. I, I don't believe he, he doesn't get killed anytime soon. But like, I okay. well, don't worry about it. You'll you'll like what happens to him here in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Rigorous torture. Uh, on April fourteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, Hancock soldiers confront three hundred Cheyenne who did not want to go along with the "I'm in charge" narrative. A parlay stops, and after a tense situation, but eventually the Cheyennes do leave. Custer is in the group that is pursued, and he takes a 7th Cavalry 12 miles away, where they're tolding that even the women and children have fled. So, like, there's literally no one here. But Custer is now on the scent. Back at camp, where the parlay was first settled, a Cheyenne chief named Roman knows asked Hancock that if he had heard from about the Sand Creek Massacre. The Sand Creek Massacre, for anyone unfamiliar, happened three years before this to the Cheyenne, and it was when a cavalry unit led by John Shivington mastered approximately 150 men, women, and children. Uh, so to have Custer lead his cavalry out against them would have brought up, obviously, some horrible thoughts and memories. But it's clearly on their mind. Hancock tasked Custer and the cavalry too, and Custer would write, quote, I knew very well from the tone of his voice that something was to be done which required haste and secrecy. And so I got up and once and drew on my boots and reported for, for orders. He said that with probably a little girl giggle of glee in his voice. Remember, Custer hasn't been able to fight really in like two years. And baby needs he's a itching. baba. He he's needs itching. It. He's probably, yeah, he's probably withdrawal shakes. His orders are very clear. Track them down and bring Do them here as fast as possible. That's it. Now, the natives are attempting to leave again, and he wanted to chase after them. But by midnight, he sees that the Cheyenne had fled. Over 300 teepees are now empty. Custer sets out at 5 a.m. the next day and is determined to bring them in. So Custer doesn't have the best of luck tracking them down. And if you were with him, you might have some doubt in just his uh, decision making. On two separate occasions, he reads the track wrong, and instead of finding the Cheyenne, he finds a herd of buffalo. Oh, my God. <laughs> which, <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, <laughs> I mean, those tracks are the same, right? Footprints and hoofs? Sir, sir, I think those are hooves. No. They are no. footprints. They're putting different, different, they're di putting different moccasins on with hoof print prints and they're walking. Trust me on this one. I know. When they ran into the herd, he was probably like, oh, drats, they got me again. How did I mess this up? <laughs> See, I like the thought of like, clear that is, sir, that is clearly buffalo. No, no, no. They're under a blanket. <laughs> yeah. Go check the blanket. They're oh. clearly disguising themselves. Can you not see that? This is clearly just organs underneath this hide. I, this, is, this is a buffalo. No, 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 no. But you'll be glad to know that Custer finds a track again. And he finds a herd of elk this time, but they're getting smaller. So eventually they're going to start walking upright and maybe there'll be a person soon. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but if I was in the Calvary with him, I'd be like, uh, guys, are we, he's our leader. Are we sure? Like for real? Like what, what is he doing? This is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know who we're marching, but I think he's an idiot. God. Do you know who's also spreading those rumors? 
Jimmy. <laughs> Freaking Jimmy, man. Oh, Jurassic Jimmy. Confederate Jimmy is now just trying to just throw shade at Custer. <laughs> Combining. He's the one elk. he's the one that's making the elk and the buffalo tracks like he's going ahead and like pushing down a little bit. He he, he I got him now. He's just going out at nights like somebody making a fake crop circle. <laughs> he's in the cal he's actually in the cavalry with a fake mustache on. What sideburn? Ambrose? <laughs> yes. So, Custer's a glass half full kind of guy, right? So Custer's actually here to kill. I mean, he's here to take in Native Americans and bring them back. But he realizes he can just hunt these animals instead. They happen to be right here. He is said to have shouted in glee at the thought of being able to attack the buffalo. For example, he is on a hunt for an antelope. And he rides three miles ahead of his bugler and they end up losing a dog in his excitement. Oh, my God. He does the same thing hunting for bison. He is quite literally the dog from Up that sees a squirrel. Doug? Yes, Doug the dog. Just squirrel. Bison? On one bison he tracks down, he shot it with a revolver, and the bison apparently just looked at him like, what what was that? That didn't do anything. He turned around and apparently Custer was kind of freaked out, but he was still chasing on his horse. When his horse veered sharply, Custer grabbed the reins with both his hands. He had a cocked pistol and was ready to shoot again. And the bullet does go off, but it misses its target by a bit. Uh, and it actually kills Custer's horse instead. <laughs> he kills his own horse. Custer would write, quote, I was throwing heels overhead clean overly, and a strange to say, I have received not a scratch or a bruise. And this is the second dangerous fall I have had in 10 days. <laughs> Apparently, the bison just looked at Custer and just left. <laughs> He's making himself look like such a fool. <laughs> when a bison gives you a facepalm, you're not doing things well. Bro, like, what are you doing, Custer? He wants to fight. I don't think you understand how badly this man wants to fight. He's willing to do anything to kill, apparently. That's probably why he was shouting with glee. Yeah, just anything. Ultimately unable to find the Cheyenne, he returns to Fort McPherson on the Platte River and then Fort Wallace. His orders are again very clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like they pin the note to his lapel hunt the Cheyennes that's it that's all you need to do nothing else seriously literally don't do anything else you have a reputation of being good prove don't, it right don't wreck it the actual quote of the letter is the object of the expedition is to hunt and chastise the Cheyennes with a portion of Sioux and their allies between the Smoky Hill and the Platte. So he's not actually looking. He's looking for a section of the Cheyennes specific, specifically. He's kind of looking for a Sioux leader named uh, Pawnee Killer. Yes, that is his name. I think Mr. Killer has has quite a hobby. But regardless, he does run a band of Sioux and Cheyenne and they do come up to them. They meet Pawnee Killer, who claimed to be peaceful, and Custer believed him. 
with a name like Pawnee Killer, how can you not believe him? <laughs> just, just a kid. Come in peace. What'd you say your name was, Mr. Killer? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. He checks out. That checks out. I like the guys. He's okay. Come on down. <laughs> I love that evil red stare you have in your eyes. Like you can't only be good. So Custer agrees he's a good egg, right? He even hands out supplies. And then Pawnee Killer uh, leaves. And then rumors that his band, Pawnee Killer again, uh, may have ambushed some Americans. Now, that ambush is unclear if it happened. But if it did, it's not hard to imagine the same supplies Custer handed out to him were used in that same attack. He quite literally aided the enemy. (laughs) Gave him, oh my gosh. Pawnee Killer is spotted again by Custer, and with Custer's tracking abilities, I think he was probably just like standing on top of a ridge, like, "Hey, I'm right here." <laughs> like, please, they we were want really you to find tracking us. Tracking Custer is what it was. They were yes. really tracking Custer. Just look lost and like turn around, surprised, and be like, "Oh, you found us! Oh, I'm so surprised!" Again, Custer. Again, this kind of proves that maybe that attack didn't happen. But Custer uh, still meets under parlay in a scene that could have literally been taken out of Looney Tunes. Custer rides up to the band of the warriors and they ride away. Custer pursues them. But after a short time, he gives up on the chase. He heads back to his camp only to find his camp was looted. (laughs) Oh, my God. Body killer had tricked Custer into leaving and then just took all of his stuff. Oh my gosh. You will be shocked to know that 30 men were like, F this guy, and they abandon their posts and they desert in broad daylight. They don't even sneak away. They just like look at him and shake their head like, ugh. Like, you know this is coming, right? Like, we have to do this. You're an idiot. (laughs) An irritated Custer sees more of the men riding out a camp, and he orders those men to be chased and shot. Jeez. The tone of this took a real turn real quick. Yeah. Only four of the 30 are caught up. One soldier is struck in the head, and when he is brought back into camp... Custer orders that he not be treated. The man later dies of his wound. Custer returns uh, as a failure. You'll be shocked to know. The men who got away were attacked by by a band of Oglalas, and all of their bodies were mutilated. On the next day, on July 13th, they make it to Fort Wallace, where Custer takes four officers and 72 men and accompany him to Fort Riley. It's about 150 miles away. Why? Well, Custer hadn't seen Libby in a while. So they arrive 50, they arrive 55 hours later for Custer and Libby to spend one day together and they return. At least he's a romantic. Yeah. Come on, I need a I need a group of men to <laughs> Come with me for what? It's a top secret mission. One night, literally, ride in, meets with her, they leave. I would like to know how much trouble Custer was in with Libby because you don't do that under that much protection with a happy wife. <laughs> right. 
whatever he did, he needed that backup. <laughs> I need at least 72 men because she is furious. Freaking ridiculous. You will be surprised to know. Just as Custer was surprised to know that he was court-martialed. <gasps> no. Do you remember his orders at the beginning of this of this little track? <laughs> track the Sue? Cheyenne. Cheyenne, yes. Chuck, as fast as possible. And I guess he kind of met them with Pawnee Killer. Um, his charges are he's he'd leave without absence from his command. Uh, that was when he was supposed to be engaging the Indians. Uh, instead, he went on his hunting trip. Remember when he flipped over the, the killed his own horse? Yeah, that's on there. Conduct to the prejudice of good order and discipline when he took three, four officers and 75 men on uh, private business to go see his <laughs> to see his wife and apparently a very specifically seriously harming the horses. I really would like to know more about that story, but all we get is seriously harming the horses in the charge. I wonder if that stems back from him killing his horse on accident. That could be. That would make sense. But it sounds like it was on that trip going to go see his wife. He then took two ambulances and four mules for his own use after learning that some of the men had been ambushed by Indians and did nothing to defend them, informed that two of them had been killed by his not doing anything. And finally, he ordered the execution of a man without trial. This is when the men were obviously deserting and one being killed uh, that was later ended up dead based off of his uh, head injury. Because you refused to give him treatment. Right. Custer is le- legitimately shocked because he's in some type of delusion at this point. And he ends up defending himself over the next year or so uh, on a very simple defense. Take a guess what it is. It wasn't me. Oh, no, it was him, but everyone was just so totes jelly of him. He had been promoted over older men that had more experience than him, and the evidence was dubious at best. <laughs> so he was mad, or he, he his defense was, everyone's jealous of me, and I'm just younger and better than everyone, so of course everyone's coming after me. With the best hair. Everyone what wishes it, they were me. Uh, dweeb. <laughs> A friend would describe Custer as, quote, it was impossible for Custer to appear otherwise not himself. So in other words, Custa gonna Custa. (laughs) But before Custer is undoubtedly going to be court-martialed and found guilty, he defends himself in an 8,000-word speech. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. For context, our Billy the Kid episode was like 5,200 words. (laughs) And I have a feeling George really emphasized those pauses. So this was probably a two-hour speech, two or three-hour speech. On November 8th, he is found guilty on all three charges, and they decide that he should lose his rank and his pay for a year. Custer was probably outraged, but I assume everyone else saw it coming. And even with Custer was being honest with himself, he probably should have seen this too. And if we're being honest with each other here, they could have done much worse to Custer. And there's so much worse. There's still that threat because he might be open 
to civilian court for the death of the man. I mean, yeah. He did nothing. He ordered it, essentially. Yes. And then he did nothing. And then he did nothing. Over the past year, Ulysses S. Grant is the commander of all things military because he is quite literally, he punched Robert E. Lee in the face enough that he quit. The case is going to be his to review to determine if Custer should be sent to civilian trial. And if and he Grant did not like Custer, he did not, which is what Custer should have been sweating at this point because Grant could quite literally just turn him over to civilian court. And there is an alternative reality where he faces the death penalty and his execution under his own men. Like he could have literally been killed by the same men that left. Luckily for Custer, Grant is in a tremendous pissing contest between Andrew Johnson, Congress, and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, all over Johnson's desire to remove Stanton from his office. Grant honestly hates his life at this time. He doesn't have time to deal with anything Custer-related. So he ends up defaulting back to good friend Phil Sheridan, who saves Custer again. Grant will not allow Custer to stand in front of a civilian court. And another instance on George Custer where you're like, that should have ended differently. Ting! Heads again. A newspaper wrote of Grant's ruling, General Grant, in reviewing the case, declared that the decision of the court-martial was altogether too lenient morally, if not legally. He implied Custer was guilty of murder. So Grant, I think if you actually would have reviewed it and didn't want to deal with the political consequences, because Custer at an open trial, Jesus Christ, are you asking for a circus? Oh my God, it would have been so bad. Especially if the death penalty was on the line. That trial would probably still be in its opening arguments because Custer wouldn't shut up. If you thought 8,000... I'm awesome. How can I be, how can I be charged with murder? Because I'm awesome. I am the best. Look at my hair. With the supposed year off, Custer has plenty of time to garner up some more support. The New York Times... Do you remember Custer's letter to McClellan where the uh the the subject of it was essentially Okay, that's prefaced up. The New York Times wrote, quote, General Custer is the is to those who know him intimately of the very bow of an American ideal cavalry officer, a magnificent rider, fearlessly brave, a capital revolver shot and without a single objectionable habit. He neither drinks, swears, nor uses tobacco in any form. His weakness, if he has one, is that a fast horse to get all of the speed out of, which there is no better man than the long-haired hero of the Shenandoah. God bless America. <laughs> Fireworks. Pew, pew. Custer spends the next uh, several months writing op-eds defending himself uh, that in newspaper op-eds that get pushed all throughout the country. Uh, we're not going to talk too much about that going in, but that would be a really fascinating uh, episode to go into because if you if you think you're he's full of himself, just read him in his actual words. Luckily, before Custer can thoroughly explore a writing career, Phil Sheridan writes to Grant saying that he needs Custer back on the field. 
Grant initially ignores Sheridan, but eventually relents, and Custer is soon headed back out west, taking control of the 7th Cavalry, as if nothing had happened. I'm back. Then he combed his hair. If Sheridan wasn't his friend, he'd been so screwed. Yeah. Phil Sheridan can have a lot of blame here. (laughs) To summarize a fairly lengthy story in a paragraph... In June 1868, a band of Cheyennes raid a neighboring tribe, which went against a recently signed treaty with the Americans. As punishment, the Americans withheld rations from the Cheyenne. The Cheyennes were not happy, and if anything, confused, because the treaty they signed were against with the whites. Why do you care if we're attacking a neighbor tribe? That should be none of your business. The American. Yeah, like, whoa, 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 wait a second. So we can't attack another tribe now? Yes, you, there's no fighting ever, and they can't comprehend that. Nor, honestly, like, I won't say this is completely the same, but if France and Britain wanted to start up a fight again, and, I don't know, Germany said no, like, you would be like, why, why does Germany care? Like, why? <laughs> you don't have a say in this. The Cheyennes blatantly ignoring the, the the orders of the agency, still plan to attack a Pawnee raid initially, but change their mind last minute. However, uh, they have young warriors, and like we've seen on a few different times with young warriors, they go off on their own, and they go on a series of raids over the next, over the next month. And in that month, they kill 110 men, 13 women were raped, and over 1,000 head of cattle were stolen were stolen, according to historian Jerome Green. But in the fall of 1868, Custer is now returning to take control of the 7th Cavalry. It's the fall of 1868. The Fort Laramie Treaty is either finishing negotiation or had just been recently signed. Custer has every motivation to take this round more to make it more successful than the last, even though it probably can't get much worse than the last one. So it's only up for here for him. By mid-November, there's already a hard crust of snow on the ground, and Custer pushes his men to find this group of Cheyenne who had been leading these raids. After several days of marching, Custer hears an infant crying and knows he must be close to the tribe. Custer divides his men into four columns and plans the attack at dawn. Inside the camp is Black Kettle, a prominent leader a notorious peacemaker, and a survivor of the Sand Creek Massacre. At dawn, Custer orders the song Gary Owen to be played at signal on his attack. It is so cold out that the trumpets actually freeze to the trumpeter's lips, which I would only assume hindered their playing a little bit, probably to the annoyance of Custer. For the first time since the Civil War, Custer is now leading a cavalry charge, a a legit one, not against a bison, no less. He's actually leading a charge and about to attack, and he is loving it. The man riding... (laughs) Yeah, you can speak, like, covering his hand, little girl giggle, like, excited, high-pitched screaming. The man riding directly next to him said that he was so excited to be working his horse and working his horse so hard that they jumped the Washita River, which had a weight, a width of nine to 12 feet, depending on where you're at. Landing, Custer takes his revolver and kills a man 
Custer then dashes all the way through the camp to a higher ground where he could watch. His orders were keep cool, fire low, and not too rapidly. So Custer kills a guy with a revolver and like what seems like a scene from The Lion King. Do you remember from Timon and Pumbaa? Like them just riding through the hyenas trying to distract them and just riding off and then they chase. That's how I'm picturing Custer going through this tribe at this moment all the way through and then just stands on a ridge like looking back. (laughs) Custer's men during the attack start opening fire on lodges, including lodges with women and children in them. Many hide into the freezing cold water of the Washita River. As they hide, they are gunned down. Warriors sniping from the trees meet the same fate. When Custer heard that women and children were being shot, he does order his men to stop, but this is not early on in the fight. Like it's been going on for a while before he tells them to stop. Right, he says he's just kind of standing there, which honestly, I understand he's on a ridge. He might not necessarily be in the camp. Once they start firing into the lodges, what do you think is in there? This is quite literally their homes, like their their houses. Are you that stupid to think there's no women and children there? Right. You know what's going on there. So I don't that seems like such a that seems like something that he could put in the papers like, "Well, I told my men to stop once I understood what was going on." But come on, be real here. You knew what they were doing. Instead, Custer orders them to be gathered up and and ensured that they be kept safe. If you were a man, however, you were executed as if it was a policy, according to historian Jerome Green. So if they even if they surrendered, they gathered all the men together and just executed them? Essentially. Jeez. Meanwhile, Custer orders that the village be completely destroyed, taking large teepee, taking a large teepee as his own prize. He orders that the horse herd be rounded up and slaughtered, and over 800 horses are killed. All of this happens. Why? All of this happens in an hour and a half. That's insane. You just round up 800 horses and kill them? Well, they're not going anywhere now, are they? Let them loose. Well, it is probably exciting for Custer is that he now hears that there's a large camp a couple miles downstream with about 6,000 natives in it. Joel Elliott, who is under Custer's command and is inspired, probably by Custer, challenges the world and rides away without Custer's approval. Elliott is last heard yelling, here's one for a brevet or a coffin. And for Elliott, it, it was definitely the coffin because as he is running towards that village, warriors are coming back to the attack site and find Elliot and his men. Elliot's contingent run into the mixed party, the Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Arapaho warriors who were rushing again to go fight the Americans. Custer soon sees those same warriors up on a ridge, meaning they now had the high ground and that they were waving at the Americans, egging them on to charge. The 7th Cavalry, now on the low ground and with a village of 6,000 people away, are severely outnumbered. Custer doesn't go, doesn't want to retreat, but he will lead the Cheyenne back because if he orders a retreat, they would be able to lead back to his wagon supply. And instead, he thinks of a plan. 
Care to take a guess what his plan is to escape? Wait till nightfall? Do you remember those women and children he gathered up? Use them as prisoners? Uh, He puts them in the center. He puts his men around them. And then he essentially puts out riders to snap at the warriors. And the cavalry start marching towards the village. He is quite literally using the women and children as bait. Now, they're not completely human shields because they're like the second tier. But is that better? No, not at all. They know that the Cheyenne obviously aren't going to fire because any missed shot is going to be the result of probably a family member dying. The Cheyenne immediately ride back in order to prepare to defend the village. As darkness falls back, Custer and his column abruptly run the other way, and it is a successful retreat. The 7th Cavalry walk away with approximately 20 men killed, mostly Elliot and his men. The Cheyenne see 103 warriors killed, 53 women and children taken prisoner, and Black Kettle, that notorious peacemaker, survivor of Sand Creek, he's one of the casualties. He is now dead. Dang. Lived a massacre to die again. Custer didn't write down any of the non-combatants killed, but those in the 7th Cavalry believed that they killed just as many women and women and children as they did the warriors, which again is just over 100. After several weeks, they find the mutilated corpses of Elliot and his men. A man named Benteen believes that Custer abandoned his men without going to search for them directly led to their death. Now, chances are they were already dead before Custer even like before Custer even knew, so I don't necessarily believe that, but that was the word going on, is that Custer abandoned them. Benteen would hold on to this for quite a while. Many of the remaining Cheyenne outside the reservation are now afraid of Custer and his immediate superior, Phil Sheridan. They fear that Sheridan will open another attack so more of them willingly come back into the into the reservation. Custer brags to his wife in a letter, quote, the arrogance and pride is whipped out of the Indians. They have surrendered themselves into our keeping. And a letter a couple months later, I've been successful in my campaign against the Cheyennes. I have marched, I have outmarched them, outwitted them at their own game and proved them that they were within my power. Just boosting that ego a little bit more. So that's not great. You look really sad right now. Matt, what are you thinking? Just watching a war hero turn evil is all. That's kind of what this episode is about. This is, uh, what's the Star Wars episode? episode is it five? So, no, it's uh, three. Three? Free. Yeah. Warrior, you see. Those are the new remakes? No. The, uh, I mean, they were when we were growing up. That is true. I should know this if my nephew's big. Seven, eight, nine are the ones that came out a couple years ago. Yeah, my nephew loves those. So, Dax, you're hearing this. I'm very sorry. Three is the one where Lou Anakin turns into. Spoilers! <laughs> it was made Spoilers. in like the early 2000s. There's that one person that will attack you. <laughs> Regardless, but yeah, it's kind of like that episode. Uh, it's it's not great. Despite being a, a war hero, Custer has never really been a man of means. 
And when he's not patrolling the planes, he looks into ways of becoming a rich man. Specifically, he looks into mind speculation or a silver, specifically uh, the first pickings of a Stevens mine in Colorado. And he even asked from a leave of duty for about two years after the Battle of the Washita River. And when I say Battle of the Washita River, we really mean massacre, don't we? However, Custer isn't, he just doesn't have the means to really stay in the the speculating game, uh, whereas other investors very much can just stay in and spend as much money as they need to on it. When he's not searching for minerals, Custer finds time to write his autobiography called My Life on the Plains, and he writes more op-ed pieces for politics and newspapers. You can almost see him revel in today's environment. Like, Custer would love Twitter. He would love being on a talking head segment on some 24-hour cable news network. Like, you get that sense that he's just, he would really adapt well in today's life. He's got a lot of hot takes, huh? Yes. Opinions on Custer are relatively mixed. His men typically still love him, except for if you forget the whole ugliness of 30 deserted during that one uh, hunting trip. One uh, one met soldier would write, quote, put an admirable cavalry soldier Custer is not only his dash and bravery, which are the most famous worldwide, but his good sense makes him what a successful leader of a cavalry should be. And I guess while in battle, that's true. Because as disgusting as the massacre at the Washita River is, it was an effective strategy. It was a successful retreat. He did get the job done. He is good under fire. Now, everywhere else, kind of hot garbage. The officers, you will not be surprised, uh, are not a fan. A man named Stanley, and keep Stanley in the back of your head. Quote, I have had no trouble with Custer. I will try avoiding having any as those who have had enough of him. I have seen enough of him to convince me that he is a cold-blooded, untruthful, unprincipled man. He is universally despised by all the officers in the regiment, accepting his relatives as one or two sycophants. He's, he brought a tailor into the field without permission, carries a Negro woman with a cast iron cooking stove, and delays the marches often by his extensive packing up in the morning. As I said it, I will try to make sure that I cannot, that I avoid trouble with him. So Custer, as you would imagine, as he would be today, as he is today, is divisive in his own time. Between a combination of keeping his name famous and wanting to be rich, it's almost like this perfect storm is coming together as rumors are in the Black Hills that there may be gold. Now, those rumors have been there for a while, so maybe Custer is willing to head back out on West. Remember, he's still on a leave for about 18 months, two years during this time. But when they want to basically send a secret expedition into the Black Hills to see if it's true, Custer uh, kind of meekly raises his hand like, I would be very interested in that, please. Please send me. Custer returns to the 7th Cavalry and is sent to Yankton in Dakota Territory. He ends up, fittingly, 
coming into April 1873 during a blizzard. And a blizzard in April in South Dakota, everywhere. Yay! So fun. It's about right, isn't it? You return in that blizzard in April. Yep, everything should be done. Mm Mm-hmm. The objective, again, it's secret, so there's really not that much on the expedition itself. But uh, on this small expeditionary force that is really meant for scouting. The scouting party consisted of 79 officers, 1,000 men, 350 civilian employees, 27 native scouts, 4 artillery pieces, hundreds of cattle, 2,000 horses and mules, and finally, 275 wagons, each stocked with up to 5,000 pounds of supplies. Easily, easy scouting party. That's all. Tiny. Uh, typical, typical what you take for a scouting party. Tiny. <laughs> There's nothing that they're looking for. Also, this doc connected with me. Do you remember when Calamity Jane said she was scouting with Custer? This would have been oh, that expedition. Yeah. That no, she wasn't there. Whoa. That she wasn't there. Well, she well she might have been, but she wasn't scouting for Custer. She may have just been one of those 350 civilian employees. So, can I tag along? <laughs> she was all the way towards the back. I would love to see those two drinking together. I think they would both just talk about themselves louder and louder over each other. To where it just ends up being like drunken argument, like where nobody knows what anyone's saying. And then suddenly they just both shut up and start drinking their whiskey slowly. I would love seeing that. So you might ask yourself on this small scouting party into the Black Hills, uh, why why did they need so many men? Uh, the tribe of the Sioux had been growing rapidly since about the first half of the 1800s and had been relatively un- untouched except through the expeditions of Lewis and Clark and traders from both French and Britain and France. Since the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which established the Great Sioux Reservation, it has been a struggle to keep them on the reservation and adapting them to their new way of life, which they would really like them to farm. But there are still plenty of other Sioux bands. It's so weird that they... Uh... They're having a hard time keeping them where they're supposed to. God forbid they step out, you know, on a, tons and tons of land around them. No, they can't go right. past the dang creek. Right. But they made it so clear in the treaty. If you haven't listened to our Fort Laramie treaty episode, uh, go give that a listen. We went to it in detail. Right. You can't step. See that stone right there? That's a no-go. Uh-uh. Can't do it. So there are tribes that are on the reservation. And they struggle to keep them on the reservation as they adapt to their new way of life. However, there are still plenty of bands that refuse to follow the treaty and refuse to take foot on this reservation. Two of the most notable names are, of course, Sitting Bull and his band of Minikanju. Actually, that's not true. It's, that's not Minikanju. He's a hunk papa. But yes, I made a mistake in my notes. Anyway, and Crazy Horse and his band of Oglala. With the rumored gold in the Black Hills and emigrant miners slowly but steadily entering the area, the government decides that it would be a good time to send some of those men in first to seek out if there's any truth to the rumors. It doesn't take long for Custer to run into hostile Sioux warriors, and on August 4th, they head out into the Yellowstone River. Custer is about 10 miles ahead of the main body of the army when he orders that the horses to graze so that the wagons can catch up. 
As he waits, he hears shots and notices a half dozen Lakota men attempting to raid the horses and steal them. Custer is able to chase them away, but becomes suspicious when they get near a wooded area. When he notices that every time he stops, they stop. Hmm, interesting. (laughs) And that when he picked up the chase again, they advanced. He then remembers there's this guy named Fetterman. Oddly suspicious. Uh, Reminds me a lot about this. So instead of chasing, he orders his men to form a skirmishing line. It's only about 90 men, but he has no way of knowing how many warriors he's up against. Custer and his men are forced to hold the line for several hours until the main body of the army catches up. And when they do, a charge is ordered and they attack the Lakota, but they flee. Custer believes that the one holding that the one that ordered the attack was Sitting Bull. And Custer really wants that big fish. If he can catch Sitting Bull, he will be immortalized. Custer rides with his men hard over the next day and a half, riding 40 miles as they attempt to find the man. And on August 11th, before dawn, Sitting Bull and his men find Custer, who are resting near the bank of a river. You will be surprised, and you will not be surprised at that phrasing, that Sitting Bull is actually the one that found Custer, and it wasn't the other way around. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) At least he didn't find an elk again. Before dawn, the Sioux opened fire on Custer's men initially, and they initially returned fire. But Custer orders them to stop because, honestly, they're so far away, we need to save all of our ammo in case they come near. Only the shots returned from Custer's men are the best long shots that he has, and he snipes them from hundreds of yards away. All of the warriors are across the river and taunting them, saying things like, Come on, man. Why don't you come over? You will give us, we will give you all you want. We are bound to have those horses of yours anyhow. We are going to cross the river and take them despite of you. Custer doesn't fall for the bait. And when the firing line is told that the Lakota are crossing the river and are already on some ponies on each side of his flank, they are able to hold off the Lakota attack. Sitting Bull is off observing and it's unclear if he's giving the orders or just organizing the attack. But then Custer, as he's about during the attack, orders the trumpets to play Gary Owen as if it's like that Gary Glitter, like jam jock song that just gets him pumped up. (laughs) Do you think he just ran those steps? If he would have known about the Rocky steps, I don't think he ever would have stopped jogging them. Why am I picturing Rocky, but with George Custer's face? <laughs> I did it! That's suddenly not that's suddenly not as an inspirational story. So Custer launches his counterattack after playing Gary Owen and charges into the ravine where the Sioux flee across the river. And after eight miles, a very frustrated Custer loses the trail. Oh, wow. Shocker. He loses a trail? No. He's such a great tracker. Do you know what I find especially funny? Uh, Tom Horn is still, like, he's very young at this point, but, like, 
Tom Horn would be incredibly disappointed in George Custer's tracking abilities. Very proud for all the reckless murder, but... What tracking ability? That's probably more accurate. Now, they say that... So, I, I don't talk about him really much, but Custer had a favorite scout named Bloody Knife. Um, I don't want to put in doubt Bloody Knife's tracking skills, but... It's it's not it's not looking good, is it, buddy? But I mean, he's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Um, he's like, do you remember the during the Groton massacre, the interpreter that was just there to pick a fight? Yeah, didn't really know the. I mean, he kind of knew the language. We kind of vaguely knew. Um, it's almost like the scout was like, "Oh, I see the sun rising over there. That's north." No, I'm pretty sure the sun rises. No, it's north. It's definitely north. Carry on. Oh, we were supposed to get off on that exit back there. (laughs) (laughs) So despite losing the trail, Custer had been found in basically two ambushes in a couple of days and was able to fend them off relatively well. Again, the man is pretty good in battle. Even those who can't stand Custer... Off can't help but praise him and how good he is under fire. Remember that Stanley who said he was going to avoid him eventually like the plague? Mm-hmm. He said that same Stanley wrote, quote, we have had two fights with the Indians. And as far as and as all this fell to the share of the cavalry, which did very well and all the men could do. He wrote that he was even glad that they left the fighting up to Custer. Probably begrudgingly. I mean, I feel like it's a case of, I hate this guy, but he gets the job done. Oh, he's so talented. Everyone knows that kid in class. The arrogant a-hole not trying. He was actually probably kind of an idiot, but like he aces all of the tests. The one that ruins the curve. Yes. Yes, I took the I took the top three scores and, you know, I mean, someone got 100. You look right at that guy, you son of a... And to, if, if Custer is that guy, he's already turning. He's in the front row, staring back at his classmates, smiling. I was the hundred, everyone. He's it's the guy you borrow the pen from. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I always carry an extra. Oh, you would, Custer. <laughs> to be fair, if he brings the pen, he probably can't find him in his backpack. <laughs> I knew it. It's somewhere in here. <laughs> Oh crap, that's actually a notebook and this It's this behind your ear, dude. It's behind your ear. No, it can't be behind my ears. That's too obvious. Can't be there. What probably wasn't uh what you wouldn't think would be a big act in the terms of this podcast, but it is for Custer. The Coinage Act of 1870 of 1873 is passed, which actually ends Silver's ability to be a legal tender. Um, and without saving you a bunch of financial uh, talk that I only half understand, uh, Custer wanted to invest in silver mines, and this ends that almost abruptly. So with that passage, uh, that gold that might be in the Black Hills, mm, that's really looking good at this point. It is important to remember that gold is not worth money. Gold quite literally is money. And if all you need to do is pick it up, you're going to do well. 
Phil Sheridan decides to build forts in the Black Hills, which, yes, does directly go against the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. And Custer continues his expedition and confirms that, in fact, there is gold in the Black Hills. Now, there's really not that much detail on how much it's found. There is some. You can find accounts of it. But it's important for us to know it's found. Custer is super excited about it. But it doesn't stay a secret for very long. The Chicago Inner Ocean wrote on August 27, 1874, from the grassroots down, it was pay dirt. Almost instantly, almost like they were there before they found gold, illegal mining expeditions run into the Black Hills and sneak past the military. And when I say sneak past, they probably high-fived each other passing in. One camp is set up and named after Custer, and one of those men head as the chairman uh, for the newly formed town of Custer, Albert Swearingen. Matt, you haven't seen Deadwood, but Al Swearingen is uh, swearing at you right now. Up until right, you just said it a second ago, I forgot Custer's a city in South Dakota. Yeah, makes you a little sad, doesn't it? <laughs> what are you thinking, South Dakota? Uh, they're thinking this is 1874, <laughs> and they just want to name it after him. It keeps getting worse and worse. Now, I do like that Custer still exists because there's almost like an irony around it now. Like, the, because it's not too far off where he was killed. <laughs> and I mean, Custer, it's not like it's a big city. It's a little small town. So no, it's pretty tiny. Ha <laughs> ha, Custer, South Dakota. Ha. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in Castlewood, South Dakota, which is a town of 600 people. And I'm pretty sure me just saying the words Castlewood, South Dakota, is the first time they've ever been mentioned on podcasts ever. Someone there right right now, yes! Yes! That's my hometown. And that's why I do it, guys. (laughs) They use the the party phone line. (laughs) How dare you. Others would confirm the reports from the Chicago Inter-Ocean as the Gold Strike was, quote, not exaggerated in the least, which, to be honest, if you're saying something isn't exaggerated in the least, you're probably exaggerating. So we're going to kind of ignore that little irony and claimed that the natives rarely entered the Black Hills. But Custer swore that he was there to protect the land from miners coming into the land and that they were to treat as if it was the law of the land to keep them off. So, yes, there's legal mining in there. Uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. But Custer is there to, to fend them off. That's really why he's there, not to mine gold. The down part that we've already alluded to is that this gold is found on land specifically given to the Sioux in the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. Quite literally, they love that gold was discovered, but they just, it's not great that it was discovered here. So Grant, uh, President Grant, strikes up a a negotiation and fails to buy the Black Hills when he offers $6 million. However, talks do fail. And again, this is that same money that is still in that bank account that has still never been collected to this day. A very frustrated Ulysses S. Grant tells the military to stop enforcing the no trespassing rules for the miners, effectively just opening up the Black Hills anyway. He then orders that all Native Americans not on the reservation by January 1876, 
would be considered hostile. Grant, what are you doing? Yep. I love you, Ulysses S. Grant. You can't defend this. You didn't play ball with me. Therefore, we're going to take your land. So he literally offered him $6 million. And when they declined, went, okay, you have until this date. Otherwise, I can't help you. Correct. I can't help you. Not only will I not help you, um, if you're not on our lines that we drove, put on a map, uh, we're going to hunt you down. And by the way, he did this late in the year. He did this in late 1875. It's January 1876. This is deadline, like halfway through the month. Hey, I know it's it's basically winter, but uh, pick your crap up and go. Right. If you you have eight weeks to move on here. And by the way, it's not like he can tweet this out either. Word is going to travel slow. So you're going to have bands that don't even know they're considered hostile yet because it's winter and they're just trying to live. It is low, low, low move, Ulysses. It's bad. It's really bad. That last part was probably Custer's favorite order ever because now he can almost, you can almost picture him crossing out the dates to January 1876 with probably just a big heart on the deadline. Like, Ooh, I can attack now as the deadlines fail and multiple bands of the Sioux refuse to report a significant spring campaign is planned as the snow melts. Brigadier General Alfred Terry, Custer, Captain Frederick Benteen, and Major Marcus Reno are sent out with just under 700 men. Benteen, do you remember me saying his name earlier? Yes. He was the one that said uh, the guy that ran off against two of the Cheyennes to his death and Custer just abandoned him. Mm -hmm. He still remembers that foreshadow sitting bull and his hunk papa invite hostile bands of sioux and when i say hostile i'm meaning this in the government's form of hostile on it like granted they're not agreeing with it so when i say hostile don't think they're all attacking but some definitely are so sitting bull uh is meeting again with the largest band of native americans potentially ever general Carey and custer and all of them form their plan on how to track them down. They have a pretty good idea because obviously it's pretty obvious even Custer can find them at this point where they are. So they devise a plan that they would ride west from Fort Lincoln and meet a man named Gibbon who was riding east to Fort Ellis. They would then meet somewhere near the Yellowstone River where a man named George Crook would ride up north from Wyoming. The three columns would then form a trap. One column would attempt to chase the tribe into another column. Now, remember, if you're looking at it from Custer's point of view, Custer is never worried about the natives attacking. His worry is constantly when they flee, not if they flee, it's when they flee. So how do we trap them to essentially fight? Because if we can do that, we're going to win. The army then leaves to go find the hostile Sioux. Custer and Terry start out together. Custer uh, frustrates Terry early on by riding ahead to go hunting. So that's still going on. <laughs> and other of various annoying things Custer would do. 
they know that they are close to these to the to the natives. They can see signs everywhere around June 1876 when Reno finds a trail that looks promising. However, Reno is forced to turn around for supplies, which frustrates Custer beyond no end. Because you can believe if Custer had found that trail, he would have just followed it until the very end, regardless of its supplies. Custer accuses Reno of cowardice relatively publicly. It had been the closest in months that they had been to finding the Sioux. Now, again, they set out in April. This is now June. So, yes, it's pretty obvious where they are, but they just can't quite find them. They know they're close, but they can't find them. Terry chooses Custer to scout the trail Reno abandoned, but his orders are to cross the Little Bighorn River and then set a trap, and the village uh, will use Custer's cavalry heading north, and Terry's men would be heading from the south, and they would essentially pinch them together. According to historian Paul Hutton, Terry, uh, quote, Terry absolutely knew that if he let Custer loose, Custer was going to find the Indians and Custer was going to attack the Indians. Custer didn't slip the lease. The leash was released and off he went. He absolutely, he's absolutely on the scent and he's going 90 miles an hour. Nothing is going to stop them. Everybody knew that. That's why he's there. On June 22nd, Custer heads off. One, Terry jokingly says to Custer before he leaves, quote, leave some for us. Custer simply replied, no, I will not. Why is he so hellbent on killing everybody? The man loves a fight. Literally until the bitter end. Custer rides his men hard over the next couple days, and on June 24th, they set out at night. Custer wants to make sure that the tribe follows the river and that none escape so that he could drive them down the Yellowstone River. Custer's worried that the natives would find out about them and flee. And in order to, to ensure that they don't, he marches another 12 miles that night. On June 25th, Custer hears from Scout that the Sioux are about 20 or 25 miles away. But on the horizon, they can see smoke over, over it, which means... They're a lot closer than that. Some of the native scouts said that there were more natives than the military have bullets. Custer isn't concerned, and he still believes the tribes will flee. So he is told, point blank, there's quite a few of them, sir. Are you sure you want to do this? We'll be all right. Yeah, it's fine. They're going to run away anyway. What do we have to worry about? They find a group of natives uh, tending to their dead from another fight five days before led by George Crook. Now, Custer doesn't know about this battle with Crook five days before. Crook is almost overrun in that attack by the large number of Lakotas. Moving fast, a scout yells to Custer, here are the Indians running like devils, suggesting that they are indeed fleeing, the small band tending to the dead from this battle five days before. Custer said, quote, the Indians are about two and a half miles ahead and on the jump. Follow them as fast as you can and charge them wherever you find them, and we will support you. And he sends out that order. Custer divides his men into three, uh, into three. 
one between Benteen and Reno, each having about 100 men each. Custer then takes 225 men. Benteen moves left. Custer moves down the right side of the bank of a small of a small screen, stream, and Rito heads to the left bank of the Yellowstone. Or sorry, of the Little Bighorn. Custer reaches out to the top of the bluff where he sees a village and he makes a note to Benteen saying, quote, Come on, big village, come quick, bring packs. Custer then takes his hat, waves it in the air, and says, Hoorah, boys. We got him. Oh, my God. This was the last time Reno's men will ever see Custer or any of his men alive. Because there are literally no survivors in the attack, Custer's ultimate end is left to Native American sources. And we will go into them in a little bit more detail as we talk about Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. But what I will tell you, because that's an ultimate cliffhanger, is that Custer and his men end up chasing, uh, end up running, going over the ridge, and they end up being uh, forced back into a plant a place called the Last Stand Hill. Custer is found uh, less mutilated than others, but with a small, with a bullet wound to his chest and his temple. There are multiple Sioux men who have claimed to be the one to kill Custer. Other sources say that he committed suicide instead of risking torture. The suicide is questionable considering Custer is right-handed and he was shot in the left temple. Now, obviously it isn't impossible, but it is believed that the chest to the blow to the, the wound to the chest was the fatal blow. And finally, Reno and Benteen meet up and they hear the gunshots that are likely here from Custer's last stand and do absolutely nothing. Remembering how Custer abandoned Elliot's men at the massacre at the Washita River over a, almost a decade ago. So they could have went in and brought reinforcements, but they were like, nah. Uh, I mean, granted, it would have been basically 400 men versus 10,000. So I don't think they probably they probably knew it would be their last as well. I think that was like an aw shucks. Um, Well, there he goes. See ya. I I think I read somewhere. Wasn't he scalped? No, he was because he was. He was less mutilated than the others. And like there is like the Sioux, if you were like, there's a, I think it's a drummer or a bugler. Uh, I believe it was this battle, but he ends up fighting just as hard as the men with like actual weapons. And he isn't touched because he died like a warrior. They were impressed by this, this boy. So he was just left as his, I think this was a little bighorn. Maybe I'm mixing that up with another fight that's in my head, but um. Custer was a good fighter. And when we go talk about the native sources, it sounds like Custer is like enjoying it until the end. So whether you believe like that's, it was gunshot, that's like, the, like that's, he knew he was going to die. So he just enjoyed what died in doing what he enjoyed. I don't believe he knew, he knew he was going to die. He had literally escaped death so many times. You would have to think you're invincible at this point. I vaguely remember watching a movie. I think it was, 
Custer. Don't they go down like they? I, I feel like I, I remember a movie where they're going down into like a little like ravine, and then like the Native Americans come in after. And I want to say that's how the movie ended. Uh, probably. You might be. Th- are you thinking of uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee? Because that does have a like a. I feel like I watched it in anything. school. I couldn't tell you. I need more context than that. Yeah, I don't know. All I remember is seeing like a a whole bunch of people riding on horses, and they're like, ah! But then like, there's like thousands of Native Americans. They're like, there's no way any of them survived. Right. So yeah, um, there is suppo- like all of these type of mysteries or big battles where there are no survivors. There are like two men that claim to be the sole survivor. Um, I don't want to get into them too much, but. Um, sometimes. Oh, I was there. I was there. There's, there is a soul survivor. And actually, if you're, if you're a treasure hunter, don't actually do this, but, uh, they still haven't found most of the catch. Like basically whenever they, they killed the, the seventh Calvary, they took most of their uniforms and like their equipment and all that. And they hid it in a cache somewhere that to this day, to my knowledge has not been found. If somebody finds it, it is worth like millions of dollars because it was Custer's last stand. We must go. Let us go, Eric. Yeah. There was a Twitch streaming. (laughs) There is a documentary on the History Channel where they did try finding it. Um, They, I mean, granted, History Channel is definitely taking a dive, but um, there is something if you're interested in watching that. I think after nearly three and a half hours of talking George Custer, it's finally time to rank this MFR. Cussy fussy, man. Let's rank them. Cussy fussy. All right. Are you satisfied? This is our biography round where we'll be handing out points between negative 10 and positive 10, depending on how well we liked his story. And I'm conflicted because he's interesting as hell. <laughs> I think it's the tale of two tales. Fair. He was so oh man. I, I the more I thought about it, the more I liked him in the beginning. You know, like obviously, dude's way too cocky. Um, didn't help that he's. <laughs> it's like he couldn't die. No one could kill him. He was untouchable. I mean, he literally in the Civil War ran. How many times did he ride off by himself? Ridiculous. Yeah, it's good. Those Civil War years are really fun. Not to, not if you were under his command. I mean, his men loved him, but it well, really died for him. for him. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they certainly did. Uh, I can't remember how many of it was. Uh, how many of them died in that one where they have uh, uh, put all of them up by the fence? Wasn't I it like four hundred and something? It was ninety percent of the total Union casualties in that battle. I think that was Gettysburg. You're talking about. Yeah, ninety yes. percent yep. of the. Yep, the the, ca- uh, the casual the cavalry casualties were him. <laughs> I I know I've said this three times, but he needs to be a miniseries, like a John Adams, a, a a a brand of brothers, because he has such a good story arc, like a Breaking Bad, uh, cocky, arrogant hero, like hero, but then eventually like really turns on himself. Not exactly like Breaking Bad, I guess, but. Well, he had uh, the only thing with him is he didn't have a redemption arc. No, 
Now, maybe he has that because he only died at like 37, 38 years old. Like he wasn't very old at all. He did all of this uh, and he's like four years older than me. I guess we never touched. We never touched on it. But did he have kids? No. Oh, wow. But his his wife would go on to talk to him. Now, Grant, his wife was very smart. So it was like. I think there was a part of her and maybe I'm misreading this. So somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if his name was still in the news, her name was still there. Cause like now she is literally speaking for him. Like she now has a voice and can protect, can protect his legacy and all of that. But she, she and herself is very smart. Um, they, again, they just have an interesting relationship. So this is a hard score. Cause I do, I do like it. So like I kind of want to give it a positive score because I am I am thoroughly entertained by him. This was long. There's a reason he is our first two parter. Lot to digest. Lot to digest. Yes, there was. Uh, here's what I'm thinking though. Do we just uh, see it? Here's another thing though. I don't know if he will be straight bad guy though. I think his total scores. I was thinking about this. I think his scores are going to be all over the place, which means his score probably his overall score isn't going to be great. Right. It'll be either really low negative or really low positive. Right. I don't think he's going to, but like in between, it's going to be like eights, seven, sixes, eights. Like they're going to be decent scores, but they're all going to cancel each other out is what I pictured in my mind. So I am interested to see what your score is because I can go either way. For this first round, I mean, I really, really enjoyed part one, part two. He just became like this almost like a. It's almost like he had a twin brother and he was a good guy and his twin brother was an evil guy. But I did enjoy his overall story. So I'm going to say an eight and a half. I mean, I'm not saying he was a a cool dude in the end there. But I mean, overall, his story was very rich. He's very interesting. But yes, there's a lot to digest with him. And all that, like, you could make this depend. You can make this like a romantic story if you want to go with his wife you can make it a drama you can make it a comedy it's really not far off from a comedy if we're being real honest there's so many directions you can take with his story that i really enjoyed him so i'm i'm just to be different from you i'm just gonna go eight even though i do like your eight and a half so his total score for are you satisfied is 16.5 the ironically named, be sure you are right, then go ahead. <laughs> this is our morality round where we'll be handing out negative 10 points to positive 10 points apiece, depending on how, uh, if he was a good egg or not. Overall, I don't think he's, I don't think he's good morally. I'm going to say like a negative seven. I think even though he, you know, he was a big, a big cat in the, um, Union Army, like he still really like his morals were still kind of, you know, messed up. And then he took that later on in life to even the extreme where he just wanted to kill. I feel like he just wanted battle, 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 battle. He didn't care what he needed the fight. That's where he felt. He let his men die. I mean, come on. Like, okay, leave. Yeah, you're dead then. Yes. And which ended up being an actual death sentence because they were all ambushed by by natives later. Um, 
he's very I mean, when we say an egomaniac, I mean this is this is who you think of to me. Um, him and Napoleon, I think, have various you know, actually, you know who he reminded me of, like offhandedly, um, that people might, I hope, agree with, is he reminded me a lot of Alexander Hamilton. Not Alexander Hamilton's wit, but Alexander Hamilton uh did not like agreeing with anyone other than himself. <laughs> and it was his decision or his everyone was wrong uh, and maybe that's maybe not the best at but like to me those two would either be uh best friends bear hugging each other or they would they would fight constantly <laughs> i don't know which one i would enjoy more but he's he's good on the battlefield but it's all kind of like self-driven you feel like it's all self-motivated i can be the hero i can save the day not we kind of thing so i mean look how many times he went off by himself. Yes. Yeah, he did lead the men into a charge. That is true. He like he did, which is ultimate bravery. That's probably next for the next round. But it it just seems like he's doing it for himself. We also can't remember. We also can't forget the uh, the not insignificant racism. Exactly. Uh, I think I kind of talked about it in the episode, but like to say that the union aren't that the army shouldn't be involved in civilian matters like reconstruction and then going out West to kill native Americans, I believe is an irony that has not fallen flat on him. Uh, and then even not wanting to help freedmen, despite literally listing 50 of them in a report being murdered. Uh, that's not great. So, I think I'm just going to match you at your negative seven, which brings him a score of negative 14. Next round to hell with the consequences. This is our crazy or clever round. We will be handing out points between negative 10 points and positive 10 points, depending on if we think he was crazy or clever. I feel like he's an idiot. What's the I context? Because he's really like, clever no. in a very specific sentence. Yeah, like, was he clever in some things? Sure. But then, like, he was also, like, take, for example, the end there. He had to have known he was outnumbered. I mean, come on. They had scouts. But in his experience, they had always fled. That had always been his experience. At what point, though, do you go, okay, I got a few hundred men here. They have a couple thousand. Yeah, they're going to run. No. Why would you even take the chance? And then also, how many times was he just like, ah, charred by myself? To play devil's advocate, he does pick the right time to charge. He's not a good scout. Uh, he's obviously full of himself. But I don't think he's stupid it's almost like nobody's gonna get this reference uh except for like maybe the three people but there was a professional wrestler about 10 years ago whose gimmick was he was kind of an idiot like a very silent like really stupid look on his face but then they would ring the bell and he would suddenly turn into like a wrestling genius his name was festus it was very weird weird time wrestling is very weird i'm sorry about talking about wrestling but it kind of reminds me of that. Like he's an idiot everywhere else, 
But in this one very specific situation, I don't think you want to fight along. You want, there's no better person to fight along with or to be led under. I mean, he did lead a bunch of people to their death. He did. He did. But he did multiple times. Yeah, multiple times. I mean, they didn't die for a re or they didn't die for no reason, but. What are you thinking? Oh, man, I don't know. I'm conflicted right now. Um, I'm going to say four. Positive. You kind of wasn't crazy. I'm not going to lie. I was going to be very proud and I was going to accept all of the hate because I thought you were going to go negative pretty severely and I was going to do like positive five and this was going to be our like most definitive, like decisive <laughs> round. Then you come at me with four and now we kind of agree. So now you took away every point I had in my head and it was going to be glorious, you son of a. Well, the thing is, he's not crazy. I don't think. I don't think one for one iota did I ever think, man, this guy's kind of has a screw loose. I mean, he has a screw loose, but like it's he just can't help himself. Well, I just think he wants glory. Yes. And recognition. I mean, although he was kind of an idiot for taking a 55 hour trip to go see his wife for a day. We're also forgetting Pawnee Killer. Like the oh yeah, I forgot about and that. <laughs> That's not great. <laughs> hey, Mister Killer, you seem like a nice guy that doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> Here's some supplies and ammo. Um, and also, there's an emigrant yeah. train right over there. They might I, have some supplies you might like. The next time they caught up to him, didn't he rob him? Ah, uh, yes, they found it, and then they they took his stuff. Man, what an idiot! Then. So then this is kind of going, this isn't clever, but like his cadet pranks, I do, I do enjoy Yeah, those. those are pretty funny. How do you say class is dismissed in Spanish? And then the teacher says it, and then the class is now dismissed. That's pretty good. I'm actually going to lower my score to a three. That gives him a score of eight. Next round. Oh, actually. Oh, this is going to be sad. So Custer. With his scores of neg of sixteen point five, negative fourteen, and eight, has a positive score of ten point five, which means we're going to continue to add points to him uh, for the rest of the rounds. The next round is draw. If we were going to be in a duel with George Custer, we're going to hand out points between zero and ten on how screwed we are in that draw. I'm going to say like a, I don't think we really have a chance, do we? He shot his horse accidentally in the head chasing a buffalo. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to say like a seven, six, six. Let's look at other scores you've handed out. You gave uh, Red Cloud an eight. Valid. You gave James Bowie an eight, negative eight. Valid. Jesse James, negative eight. Calamity Jane is a three. Tecumseh is a four. I'm going to do five. Do five. What about you? I'm not that scared of him. I'm going to be honest. Because <laughs> I feel like I can just. He did have to get close an awful lot. <laughs> 
That is true. He did almost hack a man off, ha- arms off with a saber during the Civil War. Um, yeah, I'm really not that scared of this guy. Chasing me on horseback, I think I'm scared. But if I'm a distance away, I think if I hide behind a tree, he'll just walk right past me. Where is he? I'm so mad. Where is he? I'm going to go three. And maybe that's too low. Maybe I'll catch some heat for it. But I I just, I'm not that intimidated of him for whatever reason. Because I think all I would need to do is just like, here we are on the dual field. And I'm just going to, your hair looks wonderful today. Seriously, that is a really good grade A sash you have on today. Your mustache game on point. And he will probably just faint from flattery. I know. That's all I'll say. I know. <laughs> Duh. Next round, legacy. How well known is he? This is a score we're going to hand out from zero to ten based on how well or how well we think he's known. Um, I'm going to say 10. Why 10? He's really well known. I mean, come on. Everyone knows about Custer's last stand, right? And there's a town out named after him. I don't think Custer, South Dakota counts as a, as a point. <laughs> as a valid point. <laughs> yes. Factually accurate, however misleading. <laughs> Sorry, Custer, South Dakota. Population less than a thousand. I I have to look it up. I'm not gonna lie. But uh, no, I think he's well. I think if you asked anyone, they would say, "Yeah, yeah, I know, I know about that." Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I was trying to actually talk myself out of a ten. I think I'm just gonna go nine point five. I even knew who he was, Eric. I even knew who he was this time. <sighs> I'm gonna go nine point five. I. Which is still a 19.5. I don't have a good reason because you're right. Everything is telling me. Everyone knows of Custer's last stand. I can't. I am struggling to think of who could possibly be more famous than him. And I can only think of one, but I'm not going to tell you because that was Jesse James. No. Billy the Kid. We haven't covered them yet. Tecumseh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How dare you say his name? Okay. Total score and legacy 19.5. Next round. Death bonus. Uh, does he have a cool death story? We're just going to hand out bonus points between zero and two, depending on if we think he had a cool death story or not. Okay. Let, let me just say, well, he has to get max points on this one. There is literally a thing named after his death. Okay. <laughs> it's literally called Custer's Last Stand. The only thing that's not cool about it is we don't really know what happened. We do, but we like we have Native American sources, and generally you can trust Native American sources, but in this particular case, there's so many uh, men that claim to have killed him and then he murdered and then he committed suicide. Like you just and like just like everyone else, like, yeah, I'd want to take credit for killing Custer too. It's just you don't know. We're going to get a little bit more detail, but honestly, there's not much more detail on it. That isn't he said, she said type thing because right. they are fighting a battle. Now it is, you know, 10,000 to 200, but yeah. Did you say you already put in max points? I did. Yes. Yeah. So I, before even the round, I just put two a piece because I don't think there's a more famous death we're going to possibly cover. 
Okay, next round, uh, counting coup. This is the confirmed-ish kills of Custer. And let, me take a, let me take a stab at it. Well, this one's hard uh, to look up. So we know a few stories from the Civil War, but honestly, it's going to be pretty impossible to tell. Um, maybe a couple dozen, you think? Well, that is my debate, because the massacre we, at the Washita River... I am tempted to give him all the points for every right. casualty. He is the one that charged. He is the one that ordered the killing of men, women, and children. Yeah, true. How many would that be? Well, if you go with 150 warriors were killed, and many scouts believe that were there said that they killed just as many women and children as they did warriors. So the number you see the most is like 150 total killed, but that may be doubled. So I don't know how crazy we're feeling, but I, I am not against giving him all those points because to me, those are directly related to his actions. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Uh, Cause I agree. It's actually going to improve his score quite a bit. So we're going to give him credit for 150. <laughs> <laughs> That gives him 15 counting coup points. Don't murder each other. Which, when you think of it, do we want to go back? I like his story, but I do think we need to consider uh, changing his are you satisfied scores to just negatives. Because, like, we're almost, he's in positive points. He's at, right now, he's at 57 points, which isn't the highest. It's kind of middle of the pack. Uh, and for so we're just gonna say he's a bad person. We're gonna call him a villain. How do you feel about it? Because I can go in between. I was gonna bring that up at the beginning. Like, do we uh, like do we want to just consider? Because I thought he was gonna be negative. I mean, in my mind, he is kind of a villain. Ultimately, yes. Because even in the Civil War, like I said, even in the Civil War, like he still was a sympathizer of the South. Right. So it's not like he had these strong, ah, go Union. Right. I say we make an exception for good old Custer. I think you can, we can easily go. This is the hardest person I think we've had to score. I can easily, I can see both ways with the exception of be sure you are right. I think that's a solid score. Uh, other than he was egocentric, like I like his story. I just like it knowing that he's just not a great person. So let me actually, he's actually kind of a really bad person though. Yes. Okay. Through the magical wizardry of Google documents, I've redone all of the numbers. So with switching his numbers to negative 16 and a half that brought him to negative seven and a half after to hell with the consequences we will then continue to subtract points from him. So it was negative eight total points in draw, negative 19.5 in legacy and negative four in counting and his death bonus and then counting coup. We are giving him the credit for all 150 deaths given under his order at the massacre at the Washita massacre. They say battle of the Washita river, but it's not really what that is. Fight me, which brings his total score to a very nice 69, negative 69. 
Alright. Giggity. Which seems fitting. Very. Alright. I have my coin. Alright, so essentially, what is going to happen? Eric, like always, we'll flip a coin. I will call it whatever it lands on. That person has the right to draft them in their team. We both have a team. It's going to be when it's they're full, it's going to be two teams of 20. The rest will go into a draft pool at the very end. When all 76 are done, we will have a tournament style bracket. My team versus his winner. Take all. Are you ready, Eric? I am. Like Custer, heads. I can't. I can't see the lights in it. Is it heads? It is heads. I knew it. I knew it was heads. I just wanted to confirm before I start celebrating because I'm taking that sucker. <laughs> Another evil to my team. You do have quite the baddies, and then. What's interesting about your team, you have all the baddies and then Calamity Jane and Olive Oatman. Olive Oatman's a bad guy. No, low-key. She's a low-key bad she? guy. No, just... <laughs> you have a bad guy on your team, though. You have Je- Billy or Jesse James, is it? Oh, who did you take? Nope, I have... Um, oh, no, you have guy. Bowie. I have, I have the ultimate baddie. Want to trade? George Custer. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's it. We're probably near that two-hour mark. As always, we hope you enjoyed this two-parter of good old Custer. If you like what you heard, please go on whatever podcast service you are listening to. Give us a a comment. Give us a, a like. It would help us out tremendously. Also, make sure you check out our website that eric has so tirelessly worked on ranking76.wordpress.com it has a link to all of our stuff facebook reddit you name it it's on there go check it out and remember there will be an episode next week this episode was on an off week to get the whole story out um, it, we will have an episode next week and go back to our typical every other week. Crazy horse. Not even a secret. We're leading up to the, obviously the anniversary of little big horse. This was our appetizer. So with that, I'm Eric and I'm Matt and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>